Have you ever wondered why your girls are so hard on themselves? Why they can't let things go, even when they're doing everything to convince themselves they're fine? You don't yell, you tell them to believe in themselves, and most times nobody is nearly as upset with the failure as they are. So what's going on? That's what today's guests will be discussing, what's really going on behind these heads of theirs, and maybe ours too, and what we can do to keep them out of the funk. So let's jump in to hear what renewed mind performance sports psychologist and author has to say on the subject. Let's do this. Get your head in the game, coach. You're about to get your audio dose of softball inspiration. I'm Melanie Rushing. And I'm Alicia Smith. And we help softball teams win more games and have more fun. Right now, you're joining thousands of passionate coaches across the nation who are dragging the field, prepping for the day, or driving to that other job while they learn and grow as a coach. So if you're ready to learn how to build a strong team culture, get your players to believe, and make a real difference in their lives, you're in the right place. This is the Mental Sweet Spot Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Mental Sweet Spot podcast. Super excited for today's guest. I cannot wait to hear more about his book. But let's start with welcoming Ray Santiago. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're really glad that you reached out. We're, like Mel said, we are very excited to hear about your book. But we'd like to start off getting to know you a little bit so our listeners can also get to know you. Tell us about you, where you came from and how you got to uh, into sports psych, and a little bit about your journey. Sure. So grew up in Southern California, Ventura, California. Uh, played all sports growing up, but then focused on baseball and basketball in high school. And um, when I realized I had you know, a pretty good shot at baseball, I stopped playing basketball after my sophomore year. I uh, was playing every weekend down in Southern California on uh, – Pro scout teams and enjoying it. I got to play versus guys like Strasburg, uh, Freeman, Freddie Freeman, and those were those were good times. Uh, and then I earned a scholarship to Mississippi Valley State and tore my labrum there and moved home. So after six months, basically, I got surgery there, moved home. Then I went the uh, JC route for a year and played at Oxnard College, and then uh, chased a girl up to Idaho and played at an NAI school, College of Idaho, up there and girl didn't work out but the baseball and uh, the friends were great um, and then you know I didn't get drafted I had really good connections I know agents so if I was good enough I would have got noticed and I just wasn't and I had to come to grips with that and so I was kind of cleaning out my uh, <clears throat> house at the time and wondering you know you know what's next and I came across a book that my dad gave me in my junior year of high school called the mental keys to hitting by Harvey Dorfman and instead of packing, I sat and I read that book front, front to back and uh, realized, wow, my dad told me years ago, this is what you need. And I didn't listen to him. So when as a sports like today, kids don't think they need it, I've sided with them. And I understand because we don't until we've been hit by the wave, we don't think we need, uh, you know, a buoy. And so um, I talked to my uh, academic counselor my exit meetings from college and she said what do you want to do and I said well I'm not ready to be an adult so I might as well go to grad school and she uh, asked me a really incredible question she said so I was thinking about marriage and family therapy uh, which you know I hadn't had a successful relationship yet so I don't know why I wanted that <laughs> maybe to figure out why um, school counseling or sports psychology and she said Ray which one do you still see yourself enjoying 50 years from now and I was like wow that's a simple question so sports psychology it was I took the GRE and two weeks later I got into Boise State um, 
Linda Petlikoff was my mentor for a year and then she retired. And so I was kind of on my own. So a lot of the sports psych I have is from reading books <laughs> uh, and making my own um, classes. They let me design my own classes. So I set up with the Boise State softball team, um, a sports psychology program uh, for two years. So uh, it was kind of thrown into the experience portion real quick. And so the knowledge portion had to catch up to the experience of what really happens uh, with athletes, real athletes. Uh, not just in a book and a PowerPoint. And so got thrown in, but it was so helpful to have, okay, here's what really goes on. Now here's what the information that backs it up. Can I meld the two? And so uh, I was back in about 2010. So I'm a little seasoned since then, but that's, you know, that's the story of how it all started. I love that. And I want to jump back in time to when you started. Can you talk a little about the things right off the bat that you knew you wanted to work on with the team uh, the things that were most helpful for the girls, what were some of the things you saw right away before all of this other experience? We'll get to that too. Yeah. So <clears throat> I first just wanted to be a place to vent. Uh, I, I went in and you have the LGBT community big time in the softball team I was working with at the time. And that was something that I didn't have a whole ton of experience. So again, I made another class and decided that I spent the whole semester really trying to understand that mindset and what an LGBTQ um, athlete goes through. And even 10 years ago, it was still kind of taboo. Now it's a little bit more available, but even then, so just having a place to vent and not so much even about relationships, but allowing someone that's not a coach, not a teammate, because the coach makes the lineup, the teammate is, is trying to steal your position. So you have no one to talk to. So they would come to my office and sometimes we would just vent about anything. And, and what happened is, they started playing better because they were emptying the bowl, right? Their mind was so full of distractions off the field that it was carrying right onto the field. So it wasn't about breathing exercises. It wasn't about positive self-talk. It was about just allowing you to get all the stuff out so that you can actually focus on what's going on on the field. That's what happens in real life. <laughs> As you that, both That's know. very true. That's very true. And I think over the course of the last, you know, 10 to 12 years, we've, we've all gone through different things. And these kids right now are really dealing with the aftermath of COVID and missing school. Um, have you noticed any specific impacts that might be specific to this group of kids or this generation, given those circumstances that we've gone through the last couple of years? Yeah, a lot of fear and anxiety. Um, and just getting back and being with other people. It's, it's, it's weird. They were, a lot of them were sheltered depending on the parenting style. Some of these kids didn't see other people for like six, seven months. And so I have athletes who were star athletes and came back and just were afraid and timid. Um, and so we've still been working through some of that stuff. Uh, but I think also COVID was an incredible thing for two reasons. And like every kid knows how to use Zoom now. And so everyone can have a mental performance coach, no matter where you are, everyone's comfortable with face-to-face -face in Zoom, which wouldn't have happened before COVID. Uh, and the second one is the mental side has been so much, so talked about over the last year and a half across the span of mental health that that's opened a lot of doors uh, for us as sports psych consultants. And the taboo has gone down and said, wow, this is actually really helpful. So a lot of my clients over the last year that I've gotten, a lot have been products of uh, 
COVID and COVID going wrong for them, for their careers, for their mental state. Um, yeah, it's, it, was, it was kind of prison, right? You'd lock yourself up in your room. You'd be scrolling through uh, social media, and that's all you did for so long. So a long-winded answer for that. but <laughs> No, you talked about that wave before, like it was global tidal wave. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. So to bring it back now, where you started being the sounding board, being a place for them to vent, now with kids, everyone's gotten that wave over them. What's working now? What do you like to do with your athletes to get them back to peak performance or to get them to see the possibilities of peak performance? What's working now? Well, a couple of things. Um, I know we'll kind of, we'll just weave my book. So my book is called The Pillar Bees, uh, How to Go from Your Biggest Critic to Your Best Coach. And that's what I've seen in this group of athletes today is that they are their biggest critic. Um, I saw on, I was looking through your website and talking about perfectionism and how to deal with perfectionism. And so for the last two years during COVID, uh, I've been studying self-compassion. I truly believe that self-compassion is the new self-confidence. Because confidence will come and go, depending on how I'm doing. But self-compassion is always there for you, it's especially especially when you're struggling. And it's such a simple concept. It's being good to yourself. And so that's one of the that's the main topic that I have been introducing of late is the ability to be kind to yourself. Because we've most of us, I never try to use extremes of like always and never, but most athletes know how to be a good teammate they've been a good teammate to somebody when somebody struck out twice they've sat next to them you know maybe they didn't say anything but they were shoulder to shoulder maybe put an arm around them maybe whispered hey that happens to everybody you're still a good player imagine if we just turn the mirror towards ourselves and did that after a mistake right I, I like to use this example of let's say you make an error or you strike out uh, you go back to the dugout and your evil twin comes, sits next to you, grabs a bat and starts just beating you and just getting in your face. You suck. How'd you let that happen? I can't believe that there's a scout there. You had every chance. You blew it. And it's like, we do that to ourselves. And as you know, we believe that. But that's one way to do it. And I say, hey, but check this out. When I'm sitting across from an athlete, what if the same thing happened, but your good twin came and sat next to you and said, hey, Put an arm around you because physical touch is healing when it comes from the right person, right? Hey, that happened. That's common humanity. Common humanity is saying this happens to everyone. Failure um, it doesn't sing you out as negative. Failure lets you know you're human, right? Uh, and it's actually failure that brings us more together than success because everyone fails, but not everyone succeeds. And so, hey, that happens to everybody. You're still a really good hitter. And I still need you to go out and play that position better than anybody because you're still the best in the world, even if you strike out six times. And that's the mentality I try to build in them. We can get into that a bit later about being the best in the world. But that approach is so much more valuable than the beatdown. We all try to beat ourselves up thinking it's going to whip us into shape. Whereas the self-compassion piece, if you got that from a coach, if a coach came and sat next to you and said, hey, you know what? Oh, well, I need you to go back out there and play defense. That just whipped me into shape. That just said my coach still has confidence in me. So that means I can have confidence in myself. So you have to ask yourself, which one is going to best help me rebound and get back to where I need to be and want to be? Self-compassion. <laughs> it sounds weak, but I promise you it's one of the most powerful things because it's not always kind. 
sometimes we need a swift kick in the butt because that's what we need long term. And self-compassion can also uh, provide that too. So, um, yeah, that's the piece that has been working of late. And I, I kid you not, what is this? Uh, I don't know. Last September, as in not this two Septembers ago, I started working with an athlete at the D1 level. And he was expected to go in the top four or five rounds. Uh, and But he was just beating himself up so bad because he was – he had never been the guy. He'd always been the underdog, but he had an incredible um, summer season and like scouts were coming to every practice and he just self-sabotaged because he had this pressure on him. And for three months, we worked on self-compassion. That's all we did. And by season, I mean, the guy, we call him self-love guy because he was finally in his corner for the first time in his career. This is a D1 athlete. This isn't like a little league athlete that's learning. It's not a high school. He's a D1 athlete, a junior, like for years had just beat himself up. And so now all of a sudden, you know, he, he still claims he got drafted because of self-compassion. I, I love that. We talk a lot about giving yourself some grace, right? And I think mm-hmm. that that's the, it's just different terminology, but I think the actual focus of of that changes it just a little bit from making sure we have positive self-talk to be able to give yourself some grace when you aren't perfect because of the expectations that these kids are carrying mm-hmm. inside uh, or uh, on the field and off the field are incredible and and in fact I'll share a quick story when the last time I was working with a team I said I'd like to spend you know just the next half hour just talking to everyone individually just give me you know what do you struggle with the most and these kids were just unloading on the on the pressure for the grades in school, right? Mm-hmm. Having to work and and play softball and be this and be that, and none of it really had to do specifically with a a thing on the field. Of course, it mm-hmm. leads on to the field, right? Sure. When when we are struggling with all of these things, so what are some of the things like that you like a, maybe a one piece of advice you could give a coach who wants to learn how to help these kids through this? But it isn't necessarily a natural thing for them. Sure. Uh, well, I have an equation. <laughs> we'll do some math. Um, so one of the things that's most important with self-compassion is the ability to accept what is. I don't have to like it, but I have to be able to accept it. And that's the only way I can move on. So there's a and self-compassion. It's it's a different thing. But for sports, I like to use negativity equals failure times resistance. Negativity equals failure times resistance. So negativity can be an attitude. It can be a body language. It can be any mental anguish that you're dealing with. So equals and then failure. uh, Failure is the most prevalent thing that athletes deal with in sports. That is not going to change. Failure is unavoidable. So that's our, our fixed number, so to speak, times resistance. Resistance is wishing things were different than how they are. It's banging your head against the wall, hoping something changes. So that's our variable. That can change. So what I like to say is failure is unavoidable, but negativity is optional. Failure is unavoidable, but but negativity is optional. So well, what does that look like? So if I have negativity because I failed, and I'm angry that I failed. So let's let's use a real life example. Let's say I have struck out three times today. Okay, that's three failures, right? 
and I'm walking back to the dugout and I'm F-bombing myself and I want to throw my helmet and I'm throwing, hitting the Gatorade jug, that's my resistance to the failure. So what's the opposite of resistance? Is acceptance. The more I can accept what is and what has happened, the less resistance I have. The less resistance I have, the less negativity I experience. And we'll kind of go into this quick, but we can get to the point of mastery where negativity equals failure times resistance. Well, less negativity equals failure times less resistance to the point where it says blank, and then blank is fill it whatever you want. And my is joy. Enjoyment equals failure times full acceptance. I can go 0 for 4 and still enjoy the game that I play. And when I learn to have full acceptance, it fully allows me to move forward. But when I'm resisting, so I work with a golfer right now, and if she double bogeys hole number one, she can still have a great round. But every hole, she's thinking, well, gosh, if I had just not double bogeyed hole one. She has a no enjoyment of her round, even though she can still shoot a 75, right? And so it's like, wait a second. If I just accept that that happened and say, oh, that's interesting, right? This kind of unemotional response. It doesn't mean I don't have emotions. I can have very intense emotions towards it. But then I have to think, okay, rather than be emotional, what do I need to do right now to get myself in the best place possible? So that failure is always going to be there. Failure is optional. I'm sorry. Failure is is um, unavoidable, but uh, negativity is optional. To where you can go your whole career at the mastery level, where you don't experience negativity. It sounds crazy, I know, but it is very possible. I do not play golf well, but I have never in the last seven years that I've actually been trying this thing, I've never had a bad round, even when I shoot 115. Because when something negative happens, that I know it's going to happen. Say, oh, that's interesting. Okay, re-tee it up, right? I didn't hear a broken window on the house. It was just the roof. No one's hurt. You're good, right? So um, so I like to start with that, with coaches, but also with athletes. And that equation, it makes sense. You know, there's no fluff to it. There's no motivation to it. It is a straight-up equation that works if you work it. Ah, oh, that is so good. I, I wrote it down. So I have it. People are going to get this as a quote. So don't worry, guys. You don't have to write it down. <laughs> um, and by the book, you'll have all the parts of the equation. But what made me think of is you said you play golf. <laughs> I have avoided golf because <laughs> I make the failure mean, yeah, see, it's proof I was only ever good at softball. <laughs> like, who cares? But so interesting. What, like to me, the phrase like, the resistance to me is like, what am I making it mean about me? What mm -hmm. am I, am I making it mean? Yeah. See, I am a failure. Oh, see, I do suck. Oh, see, I'm not good at anything. What are some uh, examples from athletes you've worked with or if you don't own experience, uh, what are some of the things that they're making these things mean? Like, I know so many coaches are like, I don't, why do you care so much about this strikeout? Yeah. Why are you so upset? about that bad outing. Like it's no big deal. Stop being so hard on yourself. <laughs> but once right. you understand like, nah, it's, it's what they're making. I mean, it's the resistance that's really keeping them hanging on to this bad habit. What are some examples mm. that you've seen from that? Absolutely. So, uh, number one, their identity. Um, if, if I'm a, if I have a scholarship and I'm playing summer ball and this guy's throwing 
81, 78, and he strikes me out. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, how did this guy strike me out? I must suck. Like, I must suck. You get in the car and for the next two hours on the way home, you've worked yourself down into the point where why do I even play baseball, right? It gets that bad because you make it so personal. So one of the things I share is sport is what you do. It's not who you are. Sport is a part of what you who you are, but it's not all of who you are. Um, and usually you don't find that out till you're out of sport or you get a serious injury and you have to take some time off and realize, wow, sport has become my God in a way. Um, other things, it's uh, scholarships on the line or playing times on the line. So we, uh, we fear failure, we resist failure because it's either personal or it's performance-based. And kind of something interesting I get into the book is on a deeper level, every failure gets you closer to being done with your sport. Every time you fail, it gets you closer to being cut. It gets you closer to being benched. It gets you closer to being done with your sport. So we know that when we strike out, it's not life or death. But in the sports mindset that we have, it is life or death. And that's why we have the fight flight response is because the death of an athlete is being told you are not good enough. And so when we fail, that resistance comes as a protective mechanism to say, if you don't get it together, you're going to be done with your sport. If you don't start listening to coaching. So that's what the subconscious is telling the mind is like, hey, you better get this right or you're, be, you're, you're done. So it's actually a protective mechanism and it has incredible, um, the motive is wrong. The message is right, the motive is wrong because it's fear-based instead of love-based where we should be coming from a love mindset of, hey, you know what? That happened. You struck out. Okay, get back in there. You're still a good player. So we get into this threat versus challenge mode where threat mode is like the gazelle, right? Where it takes a bite and looks up, takes a bite and looks up. Whereas challenge mode is just the lion in the bush with his tail just, you know, relaxed, waiting to strike. And that's what I try to get athletes into is, See things as a threat. I mean, see, see things as a challenge because when a lion is on the chase, it's not worried about who's chasing him. <laughs> it is chasing a gazelle, and the gazelle is the one running for its life. But that's kind of the mindset that an athlete gets into is threat versus challenge. And a lot of times it goes threat because every time I strike out, every time I make an error, that gets me closer to the end of my career. I like that. I really like that metaphor too with the – animals because you're right the the yeah. lion type athletes i'm like dang must be nice mm-hmm. maybe i was always the gazelle let's be more lion um you, you're talking about being a a bigger coach a better coach for yourself what else from the book and from your experiences can you share to help us help our athletes be better coaches for themselves yeah uh, oof. let me think for a second so the book starts with believing you're the best in the world. And I know that sounds outlandish, but until Mike Trout believed he could be the best in the world, no one else believed in it. And he believed it to the point that he worked at it, worked at it, worked at it, worked at it. And he became the best in the world to where everyone believes he's the best in the world right now at baseball. Um, so I start out with Jose Altuve, the opening story uh, where in 2006, he's in Venezuela at a tryout, and there's 60 guys there, and the next day he doesn't get a call back, and he shows up anyway, <laughs> a 
the guy who had wanted to scout him couldn't make it there the first day was there a second say hey give him a chance i want to see what he has and here's a guy who's five six he looks like a high schooler right and at that time he was even smaller than he was now uh is now um and he had already been told go home so your mindset's like you know they already don't care about me but i'm coming out anyway and so he puts on a show he gets signed that day for fifteen thousand dollars three or four years later 2012 comes on the scene in the next three or four years he's either he's in the top 13 of mvp vote this little five six guy beats out aaron judge the tallest guy in the league gets beat out by the smallest guy in the league and where did that come from it came from jose altuve believing in himself that he could become the best in the world nothing in the world told him said hey you have you're going to become this great thing but he was the only one that believed in himself and so I tell athletes, believe you're the best in the world. And there's kind of a, a caveat with that is it doesn't mean that I'm better than anyone else. It's not a comparison thing, right? You think best in the world, I have to be better than you to be the best in the world. But it's, do I truly believe that in this moment, I can get the job done? It's being fully persuaded in your mind that in this spot, I am the best person for this job. I would not have anyone else rather than me. I've got a guy who's, who's in the bullpen for um, a major league team and every time the, the, the phone call rings, he wants it to be him. Some guys are afraid of that phone ringing, but he wants it to be him because he would rather trust himself. And so that, when you have that built inside of you, and it doesn't have to be a cocky thing, it's just an inner arrogance that I am the best person for this job based on my preparation, based on where I've got my mental state, put me in because I will get the job done. It, it doesn't matter the result. That's the win is the mindset that you can get the job done. It's not that you will get the job done, that you believe that you can get the job done. Uh, that's the first thing. So I have clients walk out my office door and sometimes I'm out at the office, so we're at Starbucks and I say, I want you to leave, but don't come back until you truly believe that you will be the, you are the best in the world. And you know, it's kind of a goofy thing, but they come up, their body language is different. They're kind of smiling because they're trying something new on for the first time and they say, how does that feel? And it teaches them that it's a choice. And I asked them, hey, how'd you do it? Well, I was thinking about some of my best experiences. Uh, and so there's ways to conjure up in the book getting that feeling. Um, I'll give a quick, quick story. I became a father a year and a half ago, and I had never held a baby. I had never even, if I've never held a baby, you know I haven't changed the diaper. So I know it's coming. I'm sitting in the hospital, but what I do I'm watching the best diaper changers in the world. Every time a nurse comes in to change the diaper, I am watching. And um, I know my wife's already good at it because she had two from a previous marriage. So by the time I got home, I lay my little guy, Huxley, on the changing table. I take a deep breath away from the stinky diaper. And I say, best diaper changer in the world. Best diaper changer in the world. Best diaper changer in the world. And sure enough, it didn't go extremely well, but it went really well. Because for, for my standards, you know, so it's like, okay, well, how do I have confidence in something that I've never had confidence in or I've never even had experience in? Well, you watch. You watch the best in the world do what they do, and you borrow their confidence until you can have your own confidence. And if I have confidence that I can be one of the nurses, it still means I have to have confidence in myself. When I'm trying to be Mike Trout or Michael Jordan, I still have to believe that I can be them, which seems to be harder than to be myself. But so... 
that's kind of a way that you can build confidence when you don't even have experience doing something is watching the best in the world do what they do and mimicking mimicking it's those mirror neurons that say hey these are my hands but these are the nurse's hands and it goes so much better and it's a more enjoyable experience because it's like this is going to go well i'm really good at this even though it's my first time my husband was the expert diaper changer as well so <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> then it becomes a game like how quickly can i do this no messes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've only been peed on once. <laughs> you just jinxed yourself, sir. You better knock on some wood. <laughs> she has three boys. I have a girl, so I didn't have to experience that. But I've been puked on and all the other things. So oh, yeah. I've experienced it all, too. But kudos for you to wanting to become the best diaper changer in the world because that is awesome. So we're, speaking of your book, where can we find it? Where can we order it? How can people get their hands on it? Yeah, so right now, um, the launch date is February 26th of this year, uh, probably about 50 days away. Uh, right now, though, if you want to get my favorite chapter from what we've just talked about, as above all, believing you're the best, you can go to The Pillar Bees, so T-H-E-P-I-L-L-A-R-S, or Pillar, and then Bees, B-S, no apostrophe, book.com, thepillarbeesbook.com slash sample um, that will allow you to to get that chapter uh, and then we're not doing necessarily any pre-orders because amazon doesn't do that but february 26 is the big launch day and just super excited this has been three years in the works um, and it's a labor of love but what they're going to find is the answers to all their problems <laughs> um, there's a framework in there and uh, I don't know how much time do I have. Do I, do I have like maybe three minutes I can share real quick? Okay, cool. Absolutely, so, please do. Yeah, so this this book stems from a question that I was asked. So in 2019, just before the Houston Astros scandal broke out, um, I was interviewing for a job with them as a, a mental performance coach. And it was just me and a screen. There was just a question that pops up. And I'm rolling through these questions like, I got this in the bag. I'm going to be working with these guys. And then a question pops up that says, um, what's your philosophy in working with athletes? And I'm like, okay, what was that one class where they talked about like theories and frameworks and all that? It's like you have like one class on that stuff. It doesn't really happen in real life. But I'm like, wait a second. So I, I blew the question. Like I was trying to pull out names like DC and Ryan and this theory from self-motivation, whatever. And, uh, and so, so hard I, to don't, do. <laughs> I basically – you know, I don't know if that was the the one where I blew it or what, but basically they said, hey, we're going to go with another candidate. And that was fine. But after, uh, you know, I was done being butthurt about the whole thing, I asked myself, okay, if a major league organization is asking this question, it must be an important thing. And what the Houston Astros were really asking me was, when a player comes to you with a problem, how do you go about it? What's your approach? It's a really simple question that I had never asked myself because you read books of Ken Revisa and Harvey Dorfman, you do breathing exercises, Brian Kane, you give him an acronym, you do this. And it's like, wait a second, what's your framework, right? Like what, what, when someone comes to you for, with a problem, are you just throwing stuff at them or is there a systematic way you're going about this? And so, you know, I didn't want to reinvent the wheel. So I found that cognitive behavioral theory, CBT, is what I was using the whole time. I just didn't know it, and I wasn't using it correctly. So what this book is, is a three-year long-winded answer to that question that 
should have been a three minute answer or less. And so this book talks about four B's. There are four B's in performance, believing, breathing, your body, and battling. All of your problems exist from either your believing, which is your thought life, your breathing, which is the bridge to your emotions, an emotional issue, or your body, a physical sensation that stems from an emotional experience that came from a thought that you had that all impact your battle and how you battle, which is your performance. So uh, three of those Bs have an ING. Uh, here's an English lesson. Do you know what the ING means in the English language? Some sort of motion or movement? Yeah, it's an, on, it's an ongoing present moment action. And so why not believe? Well, you know, first play of the game, I can blow it. And even though I had all the confidence in the world right before that play, after an error, I have to re-up. I have to renew my believing to remember that I'm still the best in the world, even though that just happened. So believing, and then you're breathing your emotions, your body, and then you're battling. And so those are your four Bs. If you have an issue, it's stemming from one of those four. But within that, or even outside of that, is what I call the sports background or the sports context. Every moment has a context to it. It could be a playoff game. It could be an off-season workout. Which one are you uptight for? Which one are you more relaxed for? It could be that even at that off-season workout, that a coach from LSU shows up. That adds more to the context. So there's always a background story going on. And a lot of it has to do, and you probably can attest, to making mom and dad happy, to pleasing mom and dad, to making them proud. Oh, mom's here today, right? So I got to do this or scholarships on the line or the draft is coming out. So understanding that when you work with an athlete, understanding the problem is, hey, what's going on? So I always start with uh, what's going on when you're best performing, what's going on when you're worst performing. And it usually is something in the sports context that's going on that affects the way you believe, you breathe, your body, the way it feels or how you battle. Right. If I'm if I'm golfing really well and I'm on 17, there's a lake on one side and a, and a sand trap on the other. My my uh, grip can go numb like it will self-sabotage and my eyes are like looking at the lake. So that would mean that my 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 problem in the moment is actually stemming from my hands or my body. But it's also stemming from a thought that came and said, hey, you don't screw this up like you're, you're playing well. Right. And then emotionally start to get anxiety or tension or whatever, and then it goes right to my hands, and then how do I perform? So it's a really simple, it's actually kind of a diamond shape the way I designed it. Um, but yeah, there's your long-winded answer to, <laughs> to that. But it, it, your problem is not random. There is a reason you are dealing with what you are dealing with, and this book is going to give you those answers and add the tools to uh, fix them. And that is a wrap on today's episode. If you would like to check out his book, go to thepillarsbook.com. You can get a free chapter or snag it for yourself right away on Amazon. And if you love the topic we had today, but you don't really know where your old girls stand, you want to kind of give them an assessment, head to mentalsweetspot.com. We've got a new assessment out that can quickly give you an idea of where your team stands when it comes to the C's. So how confident are they really? How compassionate are they? We have a different word for it, but same idea goes in here. So head to mentalsweetspot.com to check that out or head to the Pillars book to get his book. Thank you again for listening. Have a good one.